With the first pick in the 2021 NBA Draft, the Detroit Pistons select Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State University. With the second pick in the 2021 NBA Draft, the Houston Rockets select Jalen Green. With the third pick in the 2021 NBA Draft, the Cleveland Cavaliers select Evan Mobley from the University of Southern California. With the fourth pick in the 2021 NBA Draft, the Toronto Raptors select Scotty Barnes from Florida State University. With the fifth pick in the 2021 NBA Draft, the Orlando Magic select Jalen Suggs from Gonzaga University. What's up, everybody? Not my house is in the house. This is your host, Eric, and as always, right next to me is my host, Zach. Zach, what's going on this morning, my friend? You know, I'm always excited this time of year, and I mean, we have an excellent returning guest today, and if this is your first time listening, I would go back to the season two, episode nine, and learn about what he's done, because what he's done, nobody else has ever done, ever, so uh, it's, it's just an honor to always have him on. Oh, absolutely. He's an NBA draft historian and the creator of the draftreview.com. He's also a guy that buys an $800 VCR in the 90s to uh, scout European players. So you know how serious this gentleman is. Honored to have him on the show for the third time, Mr. Matthew Maurer. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, man. I hope everybody's doing well. And uh, happy belated Father's Day to all the great fathers out there. Right on, man. Appreciate that. We know uh, you were working on a book the last time we talked and also on uh, WNBA draft history. I just wanted to ask how those projects are going. And are you crazy enough to add any more projects to your busy schedule? Uh, yeah, I'm always crazy, man. That's, that's, that's what my wife always says. Uh, um, as far as uh, projects, yeah, I mean, I'm still working on the WNBA stuff. Um, that that's hopefully I have, I'm going to have that wrapped up by the end of this year. Um, the book has been going well, but uh, I'm such a perfectionist. Every time I write, I always go back and make edits and I know that you're supposed to just go ahead and write, but I, I, I can't help it. Uh, so uh, that, that should be done hopefully by the end of this year as well. Um, but again, you know, it, it's been a joy of love and uh, you know, I can't wait to uh, put it out. Well, you know, we talk to a lot of, a lot of guests on the show and, and the ones that do write books, they always say it's it's definitely it's, it's an experience. It's a process. It's not something for the listeners to understand is like, you know, you, you pick up a book and you read one, you know, whether it's on a Kindle or at a bookstore, they don't realize how much TLC goes into writing a book. So it's it's definitely something that you do 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 want to take your time on. I want to ask you a quick question about the WNBA. How hard is it to 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 scout for that in terms of like the draft history for for the WNBA since it's not you know, as upfront as the, as the NBA is. Um, yeah, the WNBA, I'm, I'm still getting my feet wet with that. Um, I still lean on a lot of people who are in that industry longer than I have, you know, pretty much for me, you know, I, I, you know, just getting a better appreciation for the women game, understanding, you know, the, the complexities of certain moves and, and just honestly getting a better feel for, you know, what one move looks like on the men's side and what it looks like on the women's side and, and just learning and more and more and talking to those who have expertise in that area and, and not trying to draw from my own experience on the men's side. So like for me, it's been a little bit like uh, learning scouting all over again. So it's it's been fun. But at the same time, you know, it's in an unusual position for me because this has been something that, you know, I've done on the men's side for so long. But again, just really trying to pay respect and, and, and not try to bring in 
my ideas of things from the men's side. I think that's really smart, especially leaning on the people that have been in the women's game for so long. It gives a different perspective, and I that probably definitely helps you out 100%. Um, it's been basically a year since we've had you on, like we said earlier when we started the show. We know you're super busy during this time of the year, so thanks for coming on You know, again. We really do appreciate it. Um, I just wanted the listeners to know what everyday life is like for a draft historian, especially during the week leading up to the draft. Can you give our listeners an idea of how crazy of a time it is for you? Uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy, crazy, because essentially what, what I'm doing is in between scouting players, um, you know, writing reports for, for other places and just, you know, talking to my connects and, and people that I lean on, um, that are either close to teams or within those areas. Um, I'm also putting together profiles. Like right now, I, I just finished my 2022, uh, position rankings, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm arranging guys, I'm getting stats, I'm continually editing photos and just trying to present something so that when those players do get drafted, you know, I have an immediate, um, you know, I don't have to create anything. So again, it, it, it's a process. It really is. It's, it takes, you know, it takes quite a bit because essentially I'm, I'm putting together about, a, oh, let's say about a hundred profiles every year because you also have the early entry guys that I do chronicle as well. So anybody who's declared for the draft, I'm putting together a profile of, and especially if they stay in the draft. And unfortunately, because of the COVID restrictions um, that, that basically gave players an extra year, you know, though that's a huge (laughs) load that's been put on my shoulders because you, you have, you know, basically for those who don't know, if you were in a senior year, you could get another senior year essentially. So you had to declare, so the NBA did a senior underclassman list. And so that's been another wrinkle that's been added to me for the last couple of years. That's crazy. I didn't realize how big of an impact COVID probably had with your research and, you know, all the profiles that you had to put together. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. And, you know, I actually want to talk about the NBA finals for a little bit. I mean, it's another title for the Warriors. And I'm curious what your thoughts were on the finals and where do you see the Warriors and the Celtics really going from here? Like, do you think that these are still the two teams to beat this time next year? Uh, I mean, obviously rosters can change, but as of right now, do you think those are probably the favorites after what you saw? Uh, I think hmm, Boston's a little bit interesting for me. I mean, I think um, they have to make sure the time Lord, AKA Robert Williams is uh, healthy. I mean, he looked like at times he was on one leg and he really makes a huge difference for them when he's on the floor and providing that rim protection Um, with the Warriors, you know, this is the scary thing about teams like the Warriors. Um, They, you know, James Wiseman hasn't even played and, you know, he's looking good. And, and, and if everything projects from what I've seen of him at the high school level, uh, you know, they got themselves a great player coming up. You know, you also have Kaminga, you have Moody, so <laughs> I don't think this dynasty of the Warriors is going away anytime soon. I think they're going to be in the hunt for it for quite a while. I, and, and especially, you know, with the emergence of Jordan Poole, um, who's just his progression has been phenomenal. I, I did not like that pick <laughs> when they selected him out of Michigan. And um, man, I mean, he's just been so good. And, and the past couple of years, I've just been amazed at his progression as a player. Yeah, I mean, he's really fit into that team really well, and that kind of leads into my next question because, 
I know that you had posted a little something about Jordan Poole and just the difficulty of scouting players who might not fit in a college system very well. And I think our listeners can really benefit from learning about this too. Um, can you share with our listeners a little bit more about this and why is, uh, sometimes their game might not translate better to the NBA? Like, can you like kind of tell our listeners a little bit more about, you know, the difficulty of scouting players? Yeah, I, I think there's some coaches, I, I don't want to speak for all coaches, but I think there are some coaches where they have a system or they have an offense that they run. And sometimes players don't always fit in those offenses as good as they do at the next level. So I'll give you a case in point, like Jordan Poole, if you watch him play, he plays with a freedom and a, and a freestyle type of movement. Um, he's very good at creating. At Michigan, the offense is a lot more rigid. There's not a lot of f- free moving that's going on. Um, Beeline, when he was coaching there, um, you know, he had, a, he had his little system. He, he, and, and that system worked well for guys like Trey Burke, um, but for guys like Jordan Poole who really rely on freedom of movement to get shots together, it can be a little bit difficult to get a good handle on them from the evaluation standpoint. So when I watched Jordan Poole at Michigan, um, he always looked had spots where he looked really good. But there were times where I just think that he didn't fit perfectly. And I think, you know, unfortunately, when you talk about this, the first thing people say is, are you saying that Beeline's not a good coach? No. Beeline's an exceptional coach. It doesn't mean anything about the coaching. It just means that sometimes guys don't fit as well at certain places. And we see this in the pro leagues as well. I mean, there's certain guys where they they get traded to another team and all of a sudden their value uh, goes a lot better because they have a different offense or they have different pieces that gel better. So I, I think it's always weird that when the discussion about this, sometimes people think it's like you're, you're making an assault on the coaching staff. And really what you're saying is, look, the coaching staff has the goal to win games and they, they have a system that they think works perfect for them. And at the end of the day, sometimes that player doesn't always have the ability to accentuate their gifts. And sometimes that makes evaluating a little difficult. I mean, Ben Hallen at UCLA, his players always performed better at the, uh, at the, uh, pro level than they did in college dean smith used to have this i mean people would you know say that about dean smith's players at times um so you know again it makes evaluations a little difficult but at the same time you do also give michigan players a little bit more credit when the draft comes forward because you know that maybe what you're seeing on tape could translate better in the pros so it, it, it it always works itself out at the end of the day yeah, and those are ex- excellent points. I mean, the college game is also so much different than the NBA game. You know, I mean, it happens a lot where we see guys that might not be stars in college and they end up being great NBA players. The game's just different. And, you know, I'm really glad that you brought all those things up. But since we're still on the topic of the Warriors, um, it's a, this one's a bit of a loaded question, but the 75th anniversary list came out not long ago, and there were a lot of current guys on that list and some of the all-time greats that were left off. And obviously Draymond has been a hot topic this finals, a lot of people have been trying to throw them into the top 10 and the power forward mix. Um, times are different. Eras are different. And I'm not trying to compare eras. And I'm not saying either of these guys are top 10 They're in, the, in their position. But in your opinion, why do some of the great players from great dynasties, like maybe, I don't know, like a Sam Jones, get lost in the shuffle from being top 10 in their position uh, rather than a guy like Draymond? Like, why are we so quick to put these current players in the top 10 and leave out some of the all-time greats? 
Yeah, I, I think that's the I think that's the issue just generationally. I mean, the always the latest player is always going to be looked at as the greatest player. And that's because they benefited from evolution and they benefited from all the advances in the game. Um, a guy like Draymond Green, you know, we've seen that guy before. I mean, that guy was like Anthony Mason. Um, where Draymond Green is a little different is he's in an offense that really works well with his skill set and what he does on the court. I mean, we saw Draymond Green without Stephen Curry and without Klay Thompson, and his value wasn't what it is with those pieces. So, and again, that's not a knock on Draymond Green. Most players are system players, but he definitely is not a talent where, like, say it's Rasheed Wallace or Chris Weber, you know, other power forwards that fu- fundamentally and talent-wise, they're, they, they, you know, you put them one-on-one against, against Draymond Green, you know, they, they're probably going to kill him. It, in terms of on a team, obviously Draymond really works well, and that's why he'll definitely be a Hall of Fame player. Um, you can't argue with the results. You can't argue with the two gold medals. Um, I, I just think, yeah, at the end of the day, he's a Hall of Famer. But when we talk about Hall of Fame, is he like in that top 10 power forward talk? No, I, I still think there's other guys that I would say from a talent perspective uh, are better than him. How uh, how how much do you think social media and not having enough tape influences those decisions also because you brought up anthony mason i'm a huge knicks fan and i agree mason was doing mason was definitely draymond green before draymond green even with a better handle but there's not a lot of tape on mason so when guys start talking even when you go back further and you hear the dumb plumber talk and stuff like that not realizing how great some of these players were back in the 60s you know 70s do you really feel like because of the lack of tape and the lack of people using you know, not having the knowledge to go back and actually watch. Do you think that also affects their decisions in terms of, you know, who they're putting where? I I know it does. And I think even the bigger problem is people don't understand the, the society at the time. So let's talk about that plumber conversation real quick. And I always love it when people talk that because what they're showing me is they don't really understand how things were. So in the 50s and 60s, there was usually a one income family, you know, you you were, and usually it was the guy uh, not being sexist, but that usually how it was. The guy was the breadwinner of the family. He went out and he got a job. Well, what happened is after the NBA season was over, I mean, these guys were not getting paid a whole lot back then. We're talking maybe $4,000, $5,000, decent living when you, you know, adjust for inflation to today's money. I think that comes out to like maybe 30,000, but as a way of supplementing their income, yeah, they usually relied on trades and then they got more money um, to supplement some of that lack of career money that they were getting during the offseason. Now, what people don't want to talk about as well. So you also have to talk. We talk about this today with the WNBA. They have a season that they play and then the season they go overseas and play. So because the WNBA season does not run in, you know, with the regular basketball season, I mean, WNBA season in the summer, regular seasons, usually in the winter. So they're able to play basketball year round. I can guarantee you if the leagues at the time, such as the EBL Eastern Basketball League, if they were around to play in the off season, those guys would be playing basketball year round. That was not available to them. And thus, that's why they went out and they became, they did plumber work. They did all sorts of things. So, you know, again, 
it's it's always hilarious to me when I hear these conversations because it's like you don't really understand what 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 the average athlete in the 50s and 60s was going through. You know, there was not salaries the way it is today. There was not the ability to go to a team and say, listen, this is the money I want. There was wasn't even really any agents in the game to to talk for the players. There was no player uh, association. So a lot of these guys had to have careers because if they didn't, they didn't get simple things that we all take for granted today. I mean, one of the NBA's biggest rivals was the uh, NIBL, which was the National Industrial Basketball League. And they were giving people jobs and giving them corporate jobs and then having them play a basketball game during the, you know, after they would stop, you know, working in the office. So for them, they got the best of both worlds. They got to play basketball. They got a bonus for playing basketball. And then they had a career. So if you look in the 50s, the NBA lost a lot of talent because the NIBL was essentially buying all their top players and putting them in corporate jobs. So again, it's a little different situation. We don't have that to do today, but I think most people lose sight of all those little things I just talked about. You know what? I, I love that you brought those points up because you can also correlate that to the NFL back in that time period too. They were not given a lot of money and a lot of the NFL guys were working jobs in the offseason and not having that full. I mean, think about you know the training facilities, everything that people have nowadays that they didn't, and then still watch the basketball. Like we talked about a second ago, the basketball evolves. I mean, there wasn't a three-point line. There wasn't people taking 63-pointers a game. You know, there was it, Basketball was played differently, and it's, that's why you know, me and Zach always talk it's so hard to compare different eras and generations because of the how the game has evolved and changed no totally and that's why i don't do rankings i do tiers so for me i just think it's to your point i think it's incredibly difficult to sit there and and basically tell somebody that played in the 50s and 60s when a three-point shot didn't matter that now you're penalizing them because they didn't have the three-point shot it didn't wasn't even didn't even exist so, you know, I do tiers. So I have guys like Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, uh, Bird, Magic. Those are in tier one for me. And and I have, you know, I can go through the whole tier. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I typically go with tiers because to me, that's really at the end of the day, the only accurate way you can really gauge players. Because if you sit there and you rank them, of course, the modern guy is always going to end up being better because he has the benefit of evolution and he has the benefit of all the modern medicine. I mean, think about this, you know, in the NFL, you know, Gail Sayers, I mean, he lost his career just off an ACL. Like he blew his knee out and that was it. You know, today guys blow their knee out and they're back on the court within, you know, you know, 11 to 16 months, depending on the recovery. So it's a different time. So again, you know, you got to take all that into account. Yeah. It's always interesting how the average fan can't just appreciate what guys did in their era. Because one thing I've noticed that's kind of a pattern is that the great players always find a way to figure out how to adjust to the next era. Like, I mean, you look at Lou Alcindor who played up until 92 or Vince Carter started as a shooting guard and ended up being like a power forward on the Hawks at age 42, you know? So, I mean, it's like the great players usually find a way to adapt. And I, I have a good feeling that those fifties and sixties players would have adapted just, just fine, you know? So that's always interesting too when I've seen that see that pattern when they play at such an old age. But um, speaking of like the game evolving, how has your work evolved over the years as the game evolves? Like obviously your work and your scouting and you know your research has to evolve as the game evolves. So can you kind of talk about how you've had to kind of had, had to adjust scouting players because it must be different with how much the game has changed over the years compared to like scouting like twenty years ago. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like a whole new world. I mean, when I was coming into scouting in 97, um, you know, guys rarely declared for the draft and rarely, and if they did declare for the draft, once they were targeted for the second round or undrafted, they just withdrew and went back to school. Now, because of the two-way contract, you now have guys that are staying in the draft because they're like, I'll just get the two-way contract. So it's almost like the two-way contract has become a third round in a way for, for many people. And I just think younger and younger is the talent evaluation. So like Shaden Sharp, for example, I've had to look at, you know, his AAU games to get a good understanding of his value. Um, so many of these guys, and, I, and I'd say that's really the biggest jump for me has been, you now have to pay attention to a player's, you know, high school career, because what's happening more and more, and I talk about this in my book when it comes out, um, is the NBA is now giving more benefit to players in their high school careers than ever before. There was never this benefit as much. I mean, we saw the earliest example of this is Sean Kemp in 89, who didn't even play a single game of college basketball. And he essentially was drafted because he was a top five um, player in his class. And then we start to see as you look forward and, and you see Daniel Orton a couple of years ago with Kentucky, he gets selected despite playing limited minutes on a bad knee. He essentially got selected because of his high school career. And we're seeing more and more of that where guys are getting the benefit of the doubt. Harry Giles, uh, Scal Abissare. Like you, you're seeing more and more guys where it's like, look, I knew you were a beast in, in high school. I didn't see it in college, but we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. So you're seeing more and more of that. That's insane, too, when you do think about it, because think, think of the jump between high school and college. There's a lot of guys that are amazing in high school, and then when they get to college, it's like they become more of that you know, small fish in the big pond instead of being the big fish in the little pond. So that, that's, a, that's a big jump. Let's talk about this year's draft. Um, let's get into it. What stands out to you most about this draft class? Uh, unfortunately, it looks like a weak one. Um, I would say that it's top heavy. I mean, I think you got your, 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 your four with Chet, uh, Benchero, Ivy, and um, Jabari Smith. And then after that, I think you're going to have some, some really good, solid players. And the fall off is going to be pretty precipitous at the end of it, though. Um, so it, it doesn't have that value that the, the previous year did. I think 2021 was definitely a lot stronger in terms of talent and, and potential. This draft... Um, you know, I think it's got some nice pieces in it, and I and I know what's going to happen. There's going to be somebody who's going to be selected pretty late or mid-late, and we're going to sit there and say, man, this guy's like a 20-point game score in the NBA. It always happens that way. Yep. <laughs> so I know, it's, I know it's coming. I just don't know who the guy is. Do you have an obvious number one pick in your mind? If so, uh, who and why? Uh, my number one pick is all potential for me, and that's Jabari uh, Smith from Auburn. Um, I know among NBA draft Twitter, you know, Chet Holgram is the guy. Um, I, I, unlike most people, I, I love Chet. Um, Chet, Chet seems to be polarizing for some weird reason. Um, I saw him in high school. I was amazed by him. The only reason why I'm taking Jabari over him, I just think Jabari has a little bit more potential to work with. I think there's things that Jabari can make adjustments to and, and become a lot better. And Chet though, the thing about Chet that's scary that a lot of people don't like put into their, their thought is that Chet, you know, did not play anything like he did in high school at Gonzaga. He, you know, drew Timmy, and this goes back to our earlier conversation, 
Drew Timmy was the focal point of that offense. And oftentimes Chet Holmgren stood on the perimeter and allowed Drew Timmy to work inside. And I think that took a little bit of, uh, of uh, Chet's uh, strengths away from him on the offensive side. So I think what people saw isn't even what Chet is. I think Chet's going to be a lot better than I think most fans are giving him credit for, unfortunately. Yeah, and I mean, Jabari Smith was kind of the guy that I really liked at one, too. Um, but I think being picked first is different than believing that they can be the best player in the draft. So who do you think is the best player in the draft? Is it Chet or is there somebody else that you actually believe is the best player in your mind but might not go number one? Uh, I still have it as Jabari for me. Uh, that's the only reason why I have him going number one. If I went with if I went with a guy that I think most people feel is the best fit right now for the NBA and how it plays, that'd probably be Paulo Banchero. Um, you know, he's a great shooting forward, um, really can take over games at times. The problem with I've always had with Paulo when I watch him is sometimes he seems like he's focused and sometimes, you know, he doesn't have that kill switch on all the time. And, and that's one of the reasons why I, I, I actually prefer Jaden Ivey. Um, over Apollo, but I, I don't know if at the end of the day um, how that's going to p- play out. But, yeah, Jaden Ivey's another guy that I think, um, yeah, I think he's going to be really good. He has that kill switch on all the time. He's always trying to, to dominate his competition. So I think he's going to fare a little bit better than people think. I'm hearing a lot of stuff, like, on the Internet about people trying to trade up for him. I'm hearing the Knicks, my team, are looking to try to trade up for him. Do you think he gets – do you think someone trades up for him? Jaden? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think somebody will try, you know, whether or not um, the again, it's going to depend on the draft. I mean, it wouldn't shock me. Like, we're all picking Jabari to go number one, but it wouldn't shock me if it's any of those four guys I named. And depending on who gets picked where, that could dictate the pulse of the trade. So, like, you know, for example, if Paolo goes number one, you're probably going to see heavy trading because guys are going to say, well, if Paolo goes number one, then that means Ivy and Jabari are still out there. So it, that all can change everything. And that number one pick is really going to set the tone for, for I think, the aggressiveness with the trading. Now, if you don't mind, <laughs> maybe I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you mind doing a little quick top 14 for the lottery in your mock draft? It would be really sure. interesting for our listeners to hear your take on who you have going where and why. So you're on the clock, Matt. Where are we going first? Jabari Smith. All right. Number two. I have uh, Chet Holmgren. Okay. Number three? Paolo Banchero. Okay. Number four? Jaden Ivey. Okay. Number five? Oh, this is one that flip flop between, but right now it's Keegan Murray. Okay. Number six. Benedict Matherin. Okay. Number seven. Dyson Daniels. Number eight. Shaden Sharp. Number nine. AJ Griffin. Number 10. Jalen Duran as a local kid. Okay. My Knicks are picking 11. Who are the Knicks taking? I'm big on this kid, uh, Jeremy Sohan from Baylor. Number 12. Johnny Davis. Number 13. Mark Williams. And number 14. I have right now Malachi Brandon, but I might move Jing, Usman Jing from Australia up that at 14. But right now it's it's Malachi. Okay. Um, 
who has the biggest upside of those 14 players you just named? Biggest upside, I would have to give it to. Hmm, that's a great question. I, I would say Shaden Sharp, biggest upside, but it's also the one that could get you fired. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. Who are some of the sleepers in this year's draft? Though I know last year you were big on Moses Moody, but is there someone who is projected maybe second round or undrafted that you're really high on? Um, Jake Laravia from Wake Forest. I really like his game. I think he's a guy that um, has a lot of that skill set that the NBA loves, a power forward that shoots from the three and also can pass and has the ability to take guys off the dribble. Um, I really, really like him. He's a guy that I I think GMs are going to really salivate to get. Um, Max Christie from Michigan State. Um, I, I think I've seen him flip-flop between being a late first to early second on most mocks. I have him as a late first. I really believe in his talent. He's got a life. He's still not, he's still got to put it all together, but in terms of the potential and everything that he has, uh, he really looks good to me. Um, Bryce McGowan's from Nebraska. Um, just, he just has so much intrigue with his skills and just putting things together. I think if he would have went to Florida state, as many people thought coming out of high school, I think he'd be a little higher on people's boards than, um, you know, where they have them right now. And then there's, I would say uh, John Butler from Florida State has got a lot of traction because he's got the ability to shoot and um, get guys, you know, some some looks that you normally don't get from a guy who's 7'1". He's still very thin, um, strictly a potential pick at this point, but a guy that I really like. And then finally, um, Johan... uh, was it Makundu um, from Cholette, France? Super duper athletic. Um, I haven't seen anybody rank him in the top 100, which shocks me. I think he's, I think he's got a lot of what pros like in terms of finishing around the rim. Not really a great shooter at this point, but man, he can really finish in traffic. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned him, and I want to ask you about a, a few of the foreign players this year. I think it was last year or the year before that you talked about as a record-breaking number for foreigners entering the draft. I mean, who are some of the top overseas players that you really like and some that you might stay away from? Yeah, uh, Gabriel uh, Prochita um, from, from Italy, uh, played for Bologna. Really, really like him. He's, he's very athletic, a lot more athletic than I think we're used to um, from an international prospect. Um, who's another kid? Uh, obviously I mentioned Usman Jang. I really like his game. Um, Yannick Souza is a, is a guy that really raw plays, um, in Spain, top league ACB, but he's only averaging like two points a game. I still don't think he really knows how to play the game of basketball yet. Um, so I'm a little bit that's a guy that like, if you take him, you might as well just let him stay overseas and, and figure it out a little bit longer. Um, i trying to think who else is an international that I really like. You see, well, yeah, I, I don't know. Everybody's really high on Nikola Jokic. Um, Jovic. I, I not really a huge fan of his. I, I saw him play. I think he's got some really nice offensive moves. I mean, he takes guys off the dribble pretty well overseas. I don't know if he has the foot speed to do that routinely in the NBA. Has some ability to create, but 
again, I think he's very good. I just don't know if he's great at anything. Um, so I worry about that. I actually like the, the kid Gabriel Prochita better than I do him. And he's on Prochita's scheduled, I think, to go in the second round. I think uh, Jovic is uh, probably going to be a top 20 pick this year's draft. So I would actually bet on Prochita long term in that scenario. So those, those are just a couple guys internationally that I really, really like. You know, you talk about, you know, guys getting drafted in the second round. And one thing I always think is interesting is the draft and stash type players. How many this year do you think legitimately play in the NBA? Or how many do you think are just draft and stash guys for a bit? Mm, I'd say it's probably about 12 guys that will probably get a legitimate shot to be in the NBA this year in the second round. Um, whether that's they go into the G League or they get called up periodically throughout the year in the G League. But for the most part, I think it's about 12 guys. I think the other, I think we're, we're two, I think there's two drafts. I think there's only 58 picks this year because the, there was two that were forfeited. So the other, what is that now? 16, I think, 16 picks. The, those guys are going to be either overseas, continuing to develop, or they'll, you know, they'll, they'll stay in the G League. Um, and then, get, of course, you have the two-way contract, which is going to weigh heavily with teams. Right, like we talked about earlier. Are there any teams you think should trade down or up? I mean, do you think Oklahoma City picks up 8,000 more picks or they get rid of some of them? Or is there, is there a certain point in the draft that you wouldn't be comfortable selecting a pick? No, I always believe in BPA, best player available. But if I'm Oklahoma City, I do think this is the year that you spend a little bit of that extra currency that you have to move up. This is not a particularly strong draft. So um, I just to give you a view, at least in my view, if you're picking sixth in, in this year's draft, it's like picking in the top three of last year's draft. Like the talent is it's it's really waned. It's really bad this year in terms of, you know, heaviness of the end. Um, so it's just not it doesn't have the same return as what I'm, what I'm getting at. So, like, if you have – if Oklahoma City, I think they have the 12th – what do they have right now? Yeah, the 12th pick. And they have, I think they have one more in the first, don't they? I know they have the second, but I think they have one more. Maybe they don't. But, like, the, I, I don't know. Maybe I take that 12th pick, package the 34th, and, and, and maybe see if I can put another first round in, see if I can get into the top, top eight, go up a little bit, maybe take a shot on Shannon, Shaden Sharp because, you know, if you're Oklahoma City – Shaden Sharp's a pretty good prize to have because he's a guy that, you know, long-term, you know, you can kind of wait on. You don't need an immediate return on him. You can kind of wait on him a little bit. So that, that's a guy that if I'm Oklahoma City and I have 12 and I don't think Shaden Sharp's going to fall to me, I might trade up to get him just to, just to see if I can just stash him away for a little bit. Same thing with Charlotte, right? Charlotte has a couple of picks in the first round too, and that's a team that is, is definitely probably looking to upgrade, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. Charlotte, you know, Charlotte is very, I would not want that GM job right now. <laughs> because <laughs> Charlotte, if they don't start making noise into the playoffs, the excuses are going to be going for them. And then it's going to be, well, you just haven't put together a cohesive team because, you know, they have a lot of talent in Charlotte. The talent's just really young. And unfortunately, in today's sports market, like if if you don't start seeing wins and you don't start making a push into the playoffs, you know, management tends to get a little grumpy and says, look, you're going to either win or you're, or, or you're out of here. So I, I would not want that Charlotte job. They're definitely, to me, 
this is a year that they really got to make a, a push. You know, this might be a curveball question, but I just thought of it. It was just what you just said there with Charlotte being a younger team. Do you think there's a big player that gets moved in 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 a, in a draft day trade this year? Do you think there's a certain guy that's going to get moved for picks or or part of a part of a compensation? Like, do you think a certain team's going? All right, I'm going to go all in for like I, like I'm hearing you know chatter of certain players getting traded to get moved up. Like I'm here in Portland, you know, looking to. Uh, looking to uh, get a better player to fit that system, keep Lillard. Is there any guy you think might get traded on draft day? Hmm. If there is a guy that's going to be moved on draft day, it would be a guy that that team believes is either going to be gone in the next free agency or they're just really nervous about getting return value on which would be maybe like uh, like a Bradley Beal or trying to think somebody somebody on that level though where it's like you know look we're in a situation where we're either going to pay them a lot of money and then if we pay them a lot of money we may not be able to get much back. Portland is in this interesting scenario too. Like they say they're not going to move Dame Lillard, um, but again they're at that situation too. Dame Lillard, a lot of people think he's young. He's really not young. He's you know, people got to remember he was a four-year college player. So the time is ticking. I think he's 30 now. So they're on a they, – they got to figure it out. And Portland is a type of – and people hate to talk about this, but Portland is one of those locations where they're not a free agent hotspot, so they're going to have to really make sure that they get draft picks in whatever they do because that's really the real currency of that that back office. That's how they really get players. So they're, they're, they're more reliant on free agency than, say, a Miami – um, I'd say Cleveland is, is too. Cleveland's another team that's really reliant on, on the draft. I mean, we see that team that they've built. A lot of it is by draft capital. So, you know, it's an interesting conversation. I mean, so many people like to diminim- you know, minimize the draft, but depending on the franchises, you know, the draft is really important for some franchises and not that important for others because others, they just have the free agent destination. I mean, Utah is another spot. They have to do well in the draft. If they don't, they really suffer. Do you ever just get mad watching the draft? Like, do you have those moments <laughs> where you just shake your head, throw the remote and ask yourself why certain guys go where, I mean, like, does the inner fan ever come out of you during the draft or how do you separate like your profession from fandom during this journey of NBA draft history? Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my biggest, my biggest blow up has been uh, back in, what was that? 2016. I want to believe when it was Bruno Caboclo got drafted by Toronto Raptors. Was that maybe that was 2014, but um, I hated the pick. I didn't think that guy was good at all. I, I scouted him. I watched him. And I, I sometimes think that GMs get enamored with the title international and they just say, look, he's an international player. And they just automatically think that this guy is going to translate. And I think that's the, the one part of the NBA draft that, that irritates me the most is that the same way we've give credit to guys' high school careers, a lot of teams give credit to guys just playing international. And it's like, man, just because you play international does not mean I'm going to get a return on investment if, when I draft you. It, you know, it's like there's this we saw it in 2003 when when the draft went crazy and they were drafting just about anybody who had a pulse that was from the international market. It's just like, look, I get it. 
you know, I understand taking a chance on Darko Milicic. I'm not bashing anybody for that. But did you really need to draft Slavico Varnish, who averaged one point a game in 34th? The Knicks actually did that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) what, What are we doing here? It's like, you know, I get it. I get it on some levels, but like on other levels, it's like, look, he's averaging one point a game. I saw him play. Um, he wasn't even the fifth best player on the floor. It's like, what are you, what are we doing here? Are you just drafting him because it's international. And that's the thing. It's like sometimes the international market gets a huge push because there's this rebellious nature about the North American market. And it's like, look, no matter how you feel about the North American market and player development, and you think that guys are entitled you're going to start seeing that in the international market because with the international being more and more present in the NBA, you have a bigger push guys are the game is becoming global. The same things that afflict North America's players are going to start afflicting Europe. And we see it a little bit. We see it with Mario Hazanje. We saw it with um, a lot of people say that um, Luka Dantich is entitled. So we start, we're starting to see it more and more with the international market, it just really hasn't reared itself as much as because it was such a rare market. But now that it's becoming more and more common, you're going to start having some of these issues that you hated in North America. You're going to start seeing it international as well. You know, it's funny. I believe the Knicks just don't have a pulse when it comes to drafting international players for the most part. I've just, I've been a lifelong fan and I always scratch my head. I just feel like, you know, you talked about just drafting an international player to say say they did. And I, I hear this in football a lot and I'm curious on your take on this. Do you feel like GMs try to outsmart themselves and do you feel sometimes like they're going for that diamond in the rough to to make themselves look better. Do you think that's an actual thing or do you think that's just more internet talk? Mm, It's about 50, 50. I think some guys really believe in a player and they go out and they get them. I think some guys draft guys because they want to look clever. So, you know, like I will never bash a GM openly, but there are certain guys that are, are in the business that I know they have an ego and they like to make it sound like I saw what no one else saw. And that's why we selected this guy. And right. then when that guy doesn't do well, then it's, well, the guy didn't want to play. It's like, no, the dude didn't have that kind of talent that you guys invested in. And at the end of the day, like that's the one conversation in basketball that is you could stay all night and talk about that, which is, is it on the player or is it on the team when a player doesn't do well in the, in the NBA level? Yeah, at some point you got to take accountability for making your picks. And, you know, I ask you this question every year, ever since the Todar story, probably my favorite <laughs> story I've ever heard. But uh, <laughs> last year you told us it was Bones Highland, but who has been the most fascinating player to scout or research this year and why? Whew, let me think about this real quick. So I would say out of all of these guys, um, it's really been Chet Holmgren. I saw him as a spinely sophomore. Um, I never imagined him developing me into the player he's become. And I do think there is, I think, and look, people don't like to talk about this, but let's talk about the elephant in the room. People routinely, and look, we can say it's, we can say it's, it, 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 we can say it's, it's been earned, but at the same time, we can say a little bit of it is, is just the being in North America, but being a North American white developed player is there's pressure involved um, because so much is put on you to be good by people who are just excited to see some diversity 
And there's people that just they're they're in your side because you're this rare prospect. And let's be honest, Chet is a rare prospect. He is a fully groomed North American white player who has gone against some of the best players that we have to offer and has done exceptionally well. I mean, when you think about it, I think like when you talk about being a five-star recruit and being the top one of the top players in his class, he checks every box. And so to see him as a sophomore and then rise and become this player who outplays Imani Bates, who was the chosen one <laughs> in ninth grade, has been fascinating for me. And I think that that's a story that I, I don't know if people are comfortable talking about, but like it's something I would love to talk to Chet about because I'm sure he has, and JJ Reddick even kind of talked about it in his podcast. When you become that, that white guy that plays in a predominant, you know, African-American game, there is a certain layer of pressure and a certain layer that you have to, you have to play with. And I mean, I know most white ballers know what I'm talking about. People who are not, who people who've never played basketball wouldn't understand the conversation I'm having, but there is a certain pressure and there is more important that you have to live up to your reputation. So I'm just fascinated that Chet for pretty much his whole career has done that. And he's progressed beyond anything that I thought I could see. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. And I think average fan would never think of anything like that. I mean, that's a really awesome point that you shared on that with the pressure. And, you know, we're getting awfully close to NBA draft night. Are there any last minute rumors or are you hearing any interesting topics that we can expect to see or hear about on draft night? Uh, I mean, there's always rumors. I mean, these guys play poker like like it's no one's business. They'll tell you that this guy's top five and, he, you know, he's 20th. And they'll tell you that this guy is going to, you know, he's going to get drafted and he doesn't even get drafted. This is the era where they just, they'll tell you anything. And I remember a couple of years ago, and I, I'm not going to say the gentleman's name, but he did work for one of the major media companies. Um, I was scouting. Uh, I was with NBA Draft.net at that time. And he said, um, Hollis Price has been given a first round promise. And we laughed because we knew there's no way. We knew a GM told him that and he was dumb enough to print it. And when he printed it, we all were laughing because we we're like, this, that's not real. That's not real at all. So like, that's where we're at. You know, the, these GMs, they'll do that. They'll pick on you. They'll tell you something and you're like, yeah, that's crazy talk. But, the, but honestly, that's what they're supposed to do. They don't want to, no GM is going to tell you this is what we're going to do because they're in competition. I mean, that's the one thing I don't think fans really understand even more is that these 30 teams, they do not like each other on draft night. They're all trying to get <laughs> the best prize at the party and they're not going to tell you Jack. They're not, they're not going to tell you anything. They want to make sure that when they pick wherever they pick that their guy is there. Now that's a great point. It's like, it's like agents do the same thing. It's like agents drum up these these fantasy, you know, scenarios where oh this 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 team is interested in this guy also. It's like it always seems like there's certain teams that are always interested in like, you know, seventy five percent of the free agent class, which to me seems like basically impossible. You know, so it's like you're right; they're totally playing poker, and that's why there's always surprises on draft night. But you almost have to wonder how much of those surprises are really surprises. Speaking of the draft night, is there anything you think needs to change about the NBA draft and how it operates, in your opinion? Hmm. Yeah, we don't got enough time for that one. <laughs> 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 you got you got one specific thing you'd like to see change? 
Uh, yeah, I think the one specific thing I'd, I'd like to see change with the draft would be, um, obviously, I think if we're already going to give these guys the benefit of the doubt to be drafted, essentially we're drafting guys off their high school rep. Why are we just not allowing them to just declare out of high school? I mean, like, and, and I even got a better one for you. I don't even think they should have to declare out of high school. I think that we should do it like baseball, where if a team wants to invest in, a, in their pick and take a guy out of high school, they do it. And that's just what it is. And baseball, they don't declare. They just, those teams go out, they select their, their high school player, and they, they, that's their pick. And at the end of the day, I think we should start doing that with, with our system because at the end of the day, we're already giving guys credit, as I just explained, on being out of high school and being one of the best players in North America. So if we're already doing that, why are we playing this semantical game of you got to go to the G League or you got to, you know, or you got to go to college for a year? If these guys, in your opinion, I mean, look, let's be honest, the North American market for right now is the NBA's main source of talent. It makes up, I think, about, I think, 82 percent of the total product of the NBA. So why don't we just do what baseball does? Let's stop playing games with it. Just say, look, if you want to draft this, this kid out of high school, then you got to live with that pick. And if that kid doesn't want to sign with you, then you lose the pick. Like put the onus on the GMs and the teams. Don't put the onus on the 18 year old kid, put it on the teams. If the teams want to take that risk, that's on the team. Let, let, Let that stay at the team's level. Yeah, that's a great point. And baseball is really interesting because you know, there's so many people that get drafted and there's so many people that, you know, they'll draft people with a football background or, or athlete type background. And it's, it's, it's baseball's always intrigued me in terms of how the draft is done in, in, cause there's not, I think it's totally different than any other sports draft. Personally, I think the NFL is a lot like the NBA. It's just the NFL. You got seven rounds, but baseball, man, is a whole different thing on its own, which I think is interesting. Um, you want to give us a chance to uh, promote yourself. Let's talk about your book, website, all the other projects you got going on so the listeners can find you and learn more about you. Yeah, certainly. Um, my website is thedraftery.com. I've researched every single player that's been drafted since 1950, height, weight, birth date, birthplace, you know, statistics. Um, I have numerous pages on my page. I, I document some of the ports. Portsmouth Invitational Tournament, which is the NBA's oldest pre-draft camp since 1950. Um, see, I got the WNBA. I have an online NBA draft museum that I'm doing, as well as a book that I'm writing that will be available in stores. Um, and then finally, at the end, I'd like to say, you know, thank you to you guys. And um, also, you know, I'm also got another project that I have with uh, Basketball Reference. So, you know, it's been an exciting, fun time for me. And I, I thank guys like you for recognizing me and uh, taking time to talk to me. Oh, man, it's, it's such a joy to talk to you, man. There's Every time you're on, we learn something new. And I think it also gives our listeners a great perspective on, on the amount of time and effort. And I got to ask this question to you real quick. When you're not doing this stuff, I mean, are you catching up on Stranger Things? Or like, what are you doing? What are you doing on your downtime if you got any downtime? I don't really have downtime like that, unfortunately. I mean, I'm. it's hilarious because, you know, my wife, she's always asking me, like, what, what are you doing? You're doing something else. And, like, what a lot of people don't think about is, 
even though I've researched all these players, I get more and more information on them because family members or, or the actual player will reach out to me and say, Hey, you know, I was really born here. I know they said I was born here, but I was really born here or, or like got my birth date wrong or, you know, so I'm always updating my database. I'm always getting new information. And because of just who I am, I'm crazy. I always have <laughs> other projects in the back of my head. But yeah, I still catch up on Stranger, Stranger Things, though. Yeah, great. New season's amazing. If you haven't gotten there yet, it's it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, before we let you go, Zach, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I just want to say thanks, man. It's always an honor to have you on. I just love and appreciate your work. I'm a huge I love the history of, you know, basketball and everything. So your website and everything that you're doing is awesome, man. So I appreciate you, appreciate your time. And, you know, we're just looking forward to having you back on again. Yeah, thank you, man. And I, and I look forward to seeing you in the TBT, man. <laughs> hey, we're hoping. We're hoping. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Hey, Matt, have a great weekend, man. Be safe. Thanks for coming on the show. We super appreciate it. Oh, thank you guys so much. And uh, I look forward, as always, to talk to you guys. Thank you. Always so much fun. I mean, every time we've had this guy on, it's it's just a tradition now, basically. And it's just uh, it's so cool to learn how how much scouting, you know, you always hear this, you know, everybody's an armchair quarterback, but people that put in countless and countless and countless and countless and countless hours on this, like uh, like Matthew does. I mean, it's just it's amazing. You really learn the difference between somebody that scouts has an opinion that somebody that goes the extra effort and like if you go back to the the first season we had him on the second season we had him on he goes so far into his research because he wants the information to be correct and i think that says a lot about a guy like him and and the respect and love he has for the game yeah i mean he, he's my number one source for anything basketball related especially when it comes to history i mean he's just so knowledgeable and you know very very res re respectful you know and uh he's just somebody that if you go onto his website you'll learn just so much about basketball because you can click on all these players learn about where they're from what they've done in their careers and it's just really interesting stuff and you know we told matt this you know off recording just how much of an impact that his website has actually had on what we do you know because there's a lot of times you know i go down the draft review i'm like man like, i really want to get to know more about this guy you know so i mean He's uh he's very impactful to us, and I know that he's impactful to a lot of people out there. So go support his website, man. Go check out his book. You know that's gonna be a good book. I can't wait till that comes out. Well, the other cool thing too about today's day and age, it's like you've got Facebook, you got Instagram. You know, it's like I, I follow him on Instagram, and I love just seeing the little stuff he puts up because it's it's kind of a way to connect yourself to people that you really respect when you get those opportunities. You know, I mean. Back in the old days, you could write a letter to the editor or whatnot, but now you have instant communication. And and a guy like Matt, he's he's amazing with his communication, and like he really cares. You know, it's he's not doing it to do it for a paycheck. He's doing it because of the love of the game. So it's like you can send him a message and be like, "Hey, man, I really like this," or "Hey, this and that," and and more from that, he'll probably get back to you. I mean, he's that as you can tell in our conversations, man. He's just a laid back guy that really loves what he does. And I think that is so important, man, in life, especially for the younger listeners. If you always find something that you love to do in life, the money will follow, I promise you. It's 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 given the opportunity to do something you love because we're only here once. So, so take those opportunities, man, and there's always a place for something that you love. You know what I mean? Whether it's like him, he's not a basketball player, you know what I mean? But look at all the stuff he's done. He stayed in the game. 
You know, there's coaching, there's there's videography, there's we talk to so many people and we learn their journeys on how they get start. You know, a runner. You know what I mean? Like the people, the equipment manager. I mean, you start there. Who knows where you're going to go from? I mean, look at Spolstra. He was a videotape guy. You know, yeah. and you know, NBA champion now. You know what I mean? <laughs> a couple times. It's it's uh, it's really amazing. So. Speaking of amazing, you guys are amazing. We're charting in countries I don't even know existed. You know, I didn't really study a lot in school, but we're we're uh, charting in five more countries and one I cannot pronounce. So God bless wherever we're charting where I can't pronounce. I'm not even going to try to butcher the name. That ain't happening. But a lot of it's from what you guys do for us and, you know, sharing the stuff on social media, commenting. All that stuff makes a huge difference. It gets us great guests, and uh, we really do appreciate all the support. Zach, is there anything you want to add before we get out of here? Just big thanks to Matthew Maurer, man. I mean, like I said, I just, I can't appreciate him enough, man. I just can't thank him enough. And, you know, all the work that he does is just so impactful to the game. And uh, just a lot of respect for that guy. You know, go check him out. So go follow him. Go check him out. He, he's, uh, he's, he's definitely worth it. And go check out episode nine in season two and learn about how he got started because that's really good stuff. Oh, it absolutely is. It's like I said, he's one of our favorite guests and we're so happy and honored that he comes on once a year during the draft and talks to us and, and makes us more knowledgeable because he definitely does that for sure. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening as always. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Stay safe out there. Peace. <laughs>